Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week, I'm joined by Sam Strickland. Sam is a returning guest of Becoming Educated, and we previously spoke way back in April 2020. You can find his previous episode on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and that episode was Podcast 12 of Becoming Educated. Sam is still the principal of the Dustin School in Northampton and he has overseen his school's GCSE results from the bottom 20% to the top 20% nationally. Last time we spoke about Sam's first book, Education Exposed, published by John Catt. This time we're going to discuss his punchy follow-up, Education Exposed 2, which was published in November 2020. In this podcast, we discuss what is the halcyon dream, the misconceptions of having a knowledge-rich approach to curriculum, how we decide what teachers should include and not include in the curriculum. We also discuss poor behaviour as kryptonite to school's culture and how a teacher is an architect of behaviour. We also discuss how to make learning stick and whether leadership really is a race. I really do hope you enjoy this one, so let's dive right in to Sam Strickland on Becoming Educated for the second time. Sam Strickland, welcome back to the Becoming Educated podcast. Thanks so much for joining me again. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Uh, it's a real privilege to do two of these with you. It, it certainly is. So the first time we spoke about your first book, Education Exposed, and this time we're going to dive into Education Exposed 2, which you, you put out again toward a couple, just a couple of months back in 2020. So before we do that, then, can you share what you've been up to since the last time we spoke and, of course, how you've coped with all the lockdowns and, and the demands of being a head teacher at this time? Yeah, so the last time we spoke, the world was normal. Uh, and at that point, we were planning Research Ed Northampton. I was planning to do various Research Ed events, actually, live, you know, with real people in, uh, and real audiences. And obviously, that's all kind of just fallen by the wayside, really, since, uh, well, since March, as, as it's been the case for us all. It's been a cocktail of crisis management, sort of self-management and self-regulation to try and just keep uh, alive. I know it sounds a bit crude, but, you know, just keep keep ticking over. But having to close a school kind of down, but not down, going into that kind of key worker world, and then trying to think about how we reopened uh, the all-through school that I'm head of in June uh, for our early years, year ones, year sixes, and then for our year 11s and year 13s, and then trying to think again about how we bring it back in September, and then busking our way through September to, to now, almost the end of the uh, the academic term in the build-up to Christmas, um, and then trying to navigate our way through um, some interesting decisions for and, and t- interesting timing of decisions from the powers that be. 
Yes, of course. It's been a it's been a thankless task, but I, but I tip my hat to yourself and all the head teachers out there, just doing such a remarkable job under so much pressure. So thank you very much. Um, so education exposed too. Um, let's go straight into it, Sam. And the tagline to that is is about the Halcyon Dream. So what is the Halcyon Dream, and what do you take the Halcyon Dream to be? Yeah, if, if I cast my own mind back to. Um, when I interviewed to become a teacher uh, and you know, I was really lucky I would argue I, w- I was trained by Christine Council um, at uh, the University of, of Cambridge the Faculty of Education but I distinctly remember her asking at the, you know, during that interview process why do you want to be a teacher and you know, it's, it's kind of the x-factor answer I suppose and I imagine everybody else said very similar things uh, you know I love I love of my subjects I'm a history teacher by trade and I absolutely love live breathe history uh, and, and you know whilst I'm a head teacher I do miss kind of the, the daily hustle and bustle of being in a classroom you know for 20 periods a week um, talking history with, with kids and actually when I get the opportunity to do that it's brilliant um, but that that housing dream is just the ability to immerse yourself in your subject to share your passion your drive your enthusiasm um, for your subject or indeed you know, if thinking about a primary phase teacher teaching children an array of subjects but it's, it's that raw passion for teaching is what I would take um, that that housing dream to be and I suppose if we take it a bit a, a step further it's that in-depth subject knowledge it's that ability to talk about your curriculum and how it's built it's all the fun stuff that actually makes teaching fun and enjoyable and, and that's what it should be um, so that, I suppose in a nutshell, that's kind of what I, t- I take the house and dream to be, that ability to teach my subject without any nonsense getting in the way of it. So I like that bit about any nonsense getting in the way. And, and, and certainly as, a, as if I th- cast my mind back to my time as a pupil, you, you remember the teachers who just had pure love for the, for the subjects they're teaching. And if I think back to my own history teacher, she brought the subject to life with, with that passion. It really was great. So you mentioned a little bit there about subject knowledge, and, and you're a big advocate of knowledge driving the curriculum. Can you share what are the common misconceptions of a knowledge-rich approach, and, and what do you say to that misconceptions? Yeah, I, I mean, common criticisms are that it's just a, a raft of factual uh, details or a pub-style quiz uh, approach to learning, uh, and that pupils, all they're going to do is learn by rote. It's just you talking and kids writing things down and then having to memorise, and that there's no depth or richness to what you're trying to achieve in your classroom setting. Or the other kind of criticism of a knowledge-rich approach is this you know, skills versus knowledge uh, you know, debate that, that, that takes place. And so if you put something on Twitter about knowledge or skills, you'll get you know, one side of people saying one thing, another side of people saying another. And then some people sort of slap bang in the, in the centre trying to argue the case for both. Um, not, you know, knowledge-rich approach is far more than just learning by rote. If that was the case... Then, then actually, yeah, of course, um, you know, teaching would be really dry. But it's, it's, it's the richness of what we're actually trying to convey to our pupils. I mean, Christine Council talks about this. It's allowing the content to be the engager. And I think if we go back to the, the whole notion of false proxies for learning, when we, you know, I think about the edutainment era where we had to have a different activity every sort of 10 to 15 minutes and lessons were chunked and you were meant to be engaging in mini plenaries and producing 50 billion different worksheets, that busyness 
and that business amongst the pupils as well made it look as though they were learning and we were trying to measure learning every sort of 5 10 15 minutes which is almost an impossible thing to do but what we were forgetting in that phase is actually what are the pupils actually not just learning but retaining and then building into their long term schema so in terms of a knowledge rich approach it's about it is about sharing the richness and the fullness of your subject domain Yes, you do need pupils to know core information. They can't, how can they, you know, moving within any given subject, be able to analyze, synthesize, whatever kind of skill we want to put at it. But I wouldn't be able to write, if I'm going to take my own subject um, discipline, um, a, a well-reasoned, well-rationalized argument as to why the First World War began if I don't know all the reasons as to why that First World War began uh, and, and how they all interlink with one another. And then I can bring my own interpretation and view and opinion into that as well. It's the same with um, one of my physics teachers talks about just kids needing to know stuff. But if they don't know how A relates to B and how that relates to C, they'll never understand D. Uh, so for me, it's the building blocks. It's the pure sheer building blocks of being able to be a successful learner, which is what I think the arguments against knowledge rich often miss i think that the, the, the view is it's kind of chalk and talk and it's not it really is not and it's thinking really carefully um, and this is a real mindset set kind of shifter for teachers what exactly is it you want the pupils to know in your lesson how do you know they've learned it and it's not just a case of accepting maybe one or two answers for, or, or a series of answers sorry, from one or two pupils who always offer answers it's everybody in that room contributing and it's making sure it's checking for understanding that they all know the key things that you want them to know certainly and i, and I like what you, you said there about about sharing the richness and the and the fullness of, of of our domains and, and making that distinct difference from from that chalk and talk and, and linking it back to what you said in the first question about the halcyon dream being that passionate teacher and the love of the subject sharing that and they share it in ways that that, as I mentioned, brings that to life, and we're gonna we're gonna cover later on in the interview a little little bit about a few ideas on, on how we can make that learning stick a little bit. But in terms of our, of our curriculum, how do we do we as teachers and, and school leaders decide what to include and what what not to include in terms of of the knowledge you want to give our pupils? I mean, it's a difficult one in the. Not that we should always be doing anything, you know, we should ever do anything for Ofsted, but from a school perspective, you've obviously got to adhere to the national curriculum um, and you've also got to adhere at, at um, an examination level. And I'm sure it's the same in Scotland to whatever the specification is and what it demands from you. Um, but within that, there is a degree of choice, certainly at Key Stage 3, there's a degree of choice. Um, at, at GCSE, if I think about, again about the history spec that, that we deliver, there is a degree of choice of topics. And I think in terms of those decisions that you're trying to make, it's what, what, what and these are powerful knowledge decisions, what do you actually want your pupils to know by the end of any one given month, any one given academic year, any given key stage? But more importantly, how does that link from one year to the next? Where is the sequencing and the interleaving of your curriculum as you move forwards? And what, how does your curriculum ultimately serve as a progression model? So how are you always going back and retrieving knowledge from maybe six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, to, to, so that you know the pupils have really understood the depth of, of the, the knowledge and the, and the curriculum as a whole. Um, and then 
again, I'm going to cite Christine Council quite a bit probably throughout this um, interview, but she talks a lot about prototypes. So to give you kind of two examples, um, she, the, the word parliament, for you or I, the word parliament would have fire off, you know, lots and lots of images in our heads. And from a pupil perspective, a pupil who's got a rich sense of acquired knowledge, whose parents have really invested in them, taken them to museums, got them to watch the news, read newspapers, read books to them, you know, done all the, the, the wider cultural capital things that we, you know, we dream all of our pupils would have. They would probably come at that, what do you think about, what comes into your mind when you think of the word parliament? They'd be able to fire loads of things at it and they'd have their hand flying up in the lesson saying this, 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 this. And, you know, we can all probably visualise which kids they are in our lessons. And they're the ones that we think Think kind of through our own internal bias are really really bright so they're the ones that we will um, automatically think they do really really well I guess the flip side is you've got some pupils who haven't had that level of investment in them um, from, from you know, their family setting at the fair means or foul um, and they're probably sat there thinking oh, I don't even know what a parliament is you know I've never heard of that term um, so you've got you've got that kind of disparity as well so it's, it's thinking about within that curriculum design as you move forwards what do you want to equip those pupils with that's going to serve them well further down the line so that word you know taking parliament if i was thinking about politics teaching that at a level um what's i know it's not a gcse subject that's taught by many schools where would you want that to be built into your curriculum lower down um say at key stage three and indeed key stage four so pupils can succeed in citizenship in history in re etc and then as they move into to say the sick form so it's thinking, it is thinking about the knowledge you want to arm your pupils with so they can make greater connections as they move through the curriculum further up the school. Certainly, and that gives, gives rise to the idea that teachers really need to plan carefully what they want their students to learn. So how do you, how do you advise to go about that? It's, it's thinking about what's the end point. I, th I think that's probably your starting point. And it's a bit like thinking, well, what's the conclusion to an essay? Uh, you know, what, what's the argument behind the essay? So if I think about when I've, I've tried to train A-level pupils in how to write history essays, we always think about what's the central argument? What is it you're trying to put across in that answer? And then what are the building blocks that map around it in terms of the, the paragraphs that are going to make up your answer to support that you know, overall overarching argument that you have? Um, and how do they all thread together and how do they all interlink together? And a curriculum's kind of similar, really. We're, we're, how do you want lesson A to link to lesson B to lesson C? By the end of your um, scheme of work, your topic of work, what is it you want those pupils to have learned? How's that going to link to the next topic that you're going to teach the pupils? Or is it a case that they're going to be completely disconnected from one another? There might be a reason behind that. Um, but it's thinking about the, the bigger picture and what it is you want the pupils to, again, I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself, but what is it you want them to retain and why? Uh, and what is the powerful you know, knowledge you want them to know? I think you've got to think about it in the holistic, big sense, but then break it down into terms and then break it down into weak almost weeks and then into lessons so you know what you're trying to achieve from one lesson to the next it's not just a case of today we're trying to get through photosynthesis let's get photosynthesis done how do we make photosynthesis exciting here's a load of worksheets it's actually thinking about what, what's what is it about photosynthesis we want our pupils to know and retain 
certainly, and keeping that content as, as the main engager, as you mentioned there, earlier on. So once we've got our curriculum, we've decided what we're going to teach, teach the children over, over the year and the month and the week and the lesson, what tools are at our disposal to make that learning stick? Yeah, and this is where we can either be really labour intensive um, or where we can actually be quite smart, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you're going to go for outright, you know, tangible physical tools, I know many schools use knowledge organisers and there's, there's as many pros as there are cons to those. A lot's down to how you use them and, if, and how you build them into your curriculum delivery. Um, and workbooks is another example. Uh, we use those as a school um, where I'm based and by, mean, by no means are we the first school to have workbooks. Um, you know, I could think that, uh, of a number of schools that do in, in, a, in a national sense. Um, but I, I think in terms of we're trying to make the knowledge stick and the tools that are at, at our disposal, once you kind of go away from, and I would advocate those kind of tools actually, but they, are, they take time. And what I would say is my kind of cautionary moment point with knowledge organizers workbooks etc is don't just download them download them to look at them to see what's out there and how they work but actually you've got to build your own so they are bespoke to your curriculum you've got to own them but they take time to to produce to make and in my own experience through my own school setting you're looking at a year to to build a real high quality set of workbooks for one year group you, know, you can't do all five in one big go. You'll, all you'll do is you'll burn out your staff or you'll get toshed back. Um, but in terms of kind of small steps, is think about subject knowledge because that is our most powerful tool. Uh, and the, the overall CPD input on that front that we, um, we put into our staff. And a lot of that can come through subject communities, both within your own school setting and then in a wider kind of network setting with other schools. And I appreciate that's, a bit more difficult at the moment but then there's ways around it with um, platforms like zoom and teams etc um, but that requires heads being really brave in giving the bulk of directed time to their staff to invest in i would actually argue probably the most important thing which is subject knowledge and time to think about your curriculum i think they are probably the most powerful things that will make the biggest difference in our classroom setting um, because if you've got a teacher who is not confident with the content, they are going to struggle from one lesson to the next. Mm -hmm. And I think back to when I was um, an NQT, I had to teach eight different subjects, five to the old A2 standards, you know, A-level standards in, in newer money. And I remember teaching um, business studies and economics, and I was literally a sentence ahead of the kids. And I knew going into a lesson that if I was asked a question that was challenging, I was going to get basically torn to shreds because I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the content. And that's not a great place to be. Whereas if you know your subject inside out, when you get those kind of questions, you can really delve into it. You can really think about it with the pupils, and that makes it exciting and, and really rich. Um, what I would also say uh, in terms of kind of and I'm not trying to underplay this when I say they're easy strategies, but retrieval practice. Uh, and Kate Jones talks a lot about this in, in her book, Retrieval Practice. Um, but there are so many simple strategies. I mean, one that we, again, use institutionally is a starter for five. You know, it's five simple retrieval practice questions, knowledge based. It, you know, they take five minutes for the pupils to do. They then self or peer mark them and the teacher using their subject knowledge goes through the answers but there's so many kind of examples of retrieval practice i'm appreciate got to teach the content in the first place but 
they are from a, a teacher perspective really easy to do because they're time saving you're not producing a million and one worksheets but it relies on your subject knowledge mm -hmm. certainly does so we've we've pieced together the, the ideas around the, the curriculum being that progression model placing the teacher at the as the as the expert in the room like we discussed on yeah. first time first time you're on the podcast and that's came through again in terms of that i like how you said the subject knowledge being the one of the most important things but it brings us to to this the idea of behavior which you tackle again brilliantly brilliantly in education exposed to and you're right that poor behavior is kryptonite to a school's culture what do you mean by this and, and how do you tackle poor behavior so in terms of that the the kryptonite element I mean, you, you, you've probably seen it yourself, I'd imagine, at some stage, and I've seen it in, certainly in my career as well. But where behaviour is poor and it goes unchallenged or unchecked, then that behaviour gets worse. It's permitted, it's promoted, uh, whether that's um, you know intentional or otherwise, um, where pupils feel that they can swear at a member of staff or get, and get away with it. Well, guess what? Then that has an impact on other pupils who think that they can then get away with it. And, and you know, Tom Bennett talks about this behaviour being conformist, that probably 98-99% of behaviours that we see in our schools are conformist behaviours, especially amongst teenagers who are conformist by nature. Um, and yes, you've got some pupils, a small percentage that have got unmet needs or uh, wider um, SEN issues that we need to do, give very specific support to. But in terms of that kryptonite factor, it's where we allow all the negative behaviours that we wouldn't want to see in our um, in our schools, in our classrooms, being exhibited all the time. And I would actually argue that the worst of, of all the behaviours that you can see in a school is white noise. Because actually things like swearing at a member of staff or a fight, dare I say it, and I've had to you know, deal with all of those kinds of things in my career, are quite easy to deal with because they're big blowout things and they're very obvious. White noise in lessons is the thing that gets under teacher's skin it could become really really difficult and really really challenging you know the the, the i can think of the humming you know i've seen lessons where kids are like, and you don't know which one's doing it and they keep doing it and you get the teacher saying have a bit of quiet now please and no one really knows what a bit of quiet means but then in terms of what that does it destroys teacher morale it ruins learning for the vast majority of the kids um you know not, not all kids are badly behaved and, and not all pupils don't don't want to not learn most do most pupils actually when you sit them down want to come to school to learn and to do well and to um to have the confidence to do well and to be um reminded when they do things well um so i think most of our pupils are hardwired to actually succeed in schools but we've got to make the conditions right for that to allow to allow that to happen and at its worst where you know the, the kryptonite is allowed to really sort of strike deep um you you'll see exodus as a staff you'll see staff bodies morale just drop uh, and if you're thinking then about school initiatives and school agendas and what we're trying to do in terms of school improvement, we can't be, we can't talk to our staffing bodies about curriculum design, schema, you, you know, teaching and learning strategies, deliberate practice and all the things we'd like to do. If all they're going to turn around is, is say to you, the kids don't behave, you, 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 you're totally then just caught out. Because unless you deal with that and get rid of that as an issue, it's always going to be there. And it's not even the elephant in the room. It's literally just slapping you in the face. So it's, it's, a, it's a major factor for schools if they haven't got it right. And it's also it's a massive marketing tool as well. 
um, not just in terms of parents and parents wanting to select your school for their you know their child uh, and obviously there's an issue of numbers on roll if you don't get the numbers you've got a funding issue you then have a staffing issue but the other aspect is um, recruitment it has a massive effect on, on, on recruitment and it's something I've seen in my own school setting that since we've really addressed behavior since I've been at the school we've gone from virtually nobody applying for a position to 30 40 people applying for any one post that we put out it's amazing uh, you know the difference because that the I'd hope to think that the, the reputation of my school is one that's taken behaviour and workload seriously as long with curriculum and all the right things. But that message has got out and people um, are interested in the school as a result. And that's that's marketing, isn't it, I suppose, even though we're, we're doing it for very genuine reasons in terms of why we've, we've dealt with it. But that, that level of kryptonite has just so many effects, it, it, negative effects, negative effects on morale, on learning, on work, on staff workload, staff retention, results. And of course, your, your attention to pupils and your attraction of pupils. In terms of what we can do about behaviour, um, it starts with the top. And I think we talked about this the first time um, we, we spoke, actually. Um, but it starts with the top. And it's no accident that the culture and behaviour is a major standard for head teacher standards. They are the ones that should be driving this from the top. And it's all very well to say, you know, our school should be well behaved in a briefing, walk off, leave it. And let you know let some kind of um you know war of what the world sort of take place with it without any real direction it's got to be directed from the top there's got to be a, in my opinion a clear behavior system and every school's got its own kind of nuance and niche and culture and character and behavior systems vary for obviously from one school to the next but I do think there needs to be a sense of routine you know children need routines it doesn't matter what age they are they all thrive off routines because routines bring about certainty and certainty brings about a degree of comfort and a degree of feeling safe with the members of staff that are in front of them pupils know that if they can't do you know x y and z then they don't do x y and z by and large and if someone does they stick out like a sore thumb uh, you know and and they do um, and i think that's the really that's the first thing you've got to go for when you're trying to to drive behavior is to establish a set of routines and a set of non-negotiables these are the lines in the sand this doesn't mean i'm some sort of zero tolerance you know starsy heads this is simply these are things that are antisocial behaviors so bringing in a weapon to school bringing in illegal substances as examples swearing at staff they don't happen in my school I, I, you know in, in a broad sense these these are things that shouldn't be happening in our schools and these are things we simply will exclude for but then you've got to stand by what you say so for sake of argument it, you know, one of our our um, red lines is swearing at staff now let's just say for sake of argument it's the 30th time in a row that a member of staff has been sworn at this term if i then go and look at my exclusion data before i make a decision about johnny and think well we've already had 29 of these we probably can't afford to do another one I, i'm not really standing by what i i believe in and, um, and actually i'm not staying true to my word there has to be total consistency with your approach otherwise it undermines itself or you undermine yourself Certainly, and that's that's a it's a wonderful wonderful stance to have, and, and staying true to that values, and it definitely supports teachers. And it brings me back to this idea I heard about a long time ago that the classroom conditions that is allowed in the school are essentially the teachers' working conditions. Mm. And we want them to be want them to be right, and, and it's great that you say that that 
comes from the top. And we spoke about it at length last time, and, and you've mentioned the exact same things again, which shows how, how true they are to you and your school. In the, in the book, you also explore this idea that the teacher should be an architect of behaviour. So how does a teacher go about becoming a, an architect of behaviour and teaching the behaviour that they want in their classroom? You've, you've got that interplay, haven't you, between, I mean, I call this the mothership and the satellites. You've got the school and its direction of what it wants. Uh, and, and again, every school is different. But once, ultimately, once the classroom door shuts, kind of metaphorically speaking, it's you and 30 pupils, potentially. And, you know, for 55 minutes, an hour, however long a lesson is, it's you and them. And you have got to, as the class teacher, boss your classroom. Um, Barry Smith talks about this. It's a show. You are putting on, for that lesson, a theatrical show. Um, and you know, however we dress it up or otherwise, you know, taking away the academic element here, it's pantomime. Um, you know, even the, the most introverted member of staff has got to go in, into actor mode, panto mode and boss that class. And under normal circumstances, we take COVID out from the minute they walk in your classroom. I mean, the narrative that we use is you are entering the teacher's room. It's not your classroom. It's their classroom, uh, as in the teachers. And you, you have got to respect their rules their expectations their way of how they want their their classroom setting to run obviously that's in accordance with what we expect as a school um but from a, a teacher perspective you've got to think I, th I would argue really carefully about what is it you want and actually probably before you even start planning your subject you should be planning what you want from your classes how do you want them to enter the room what do you want them to do when they enter the room? How do you want them to sit? Where do you want them to sit? How do you want your furniture laid out? Unless the school's been really prescriptive about what should and shouldn't happen uh, in terms of furniture. Uh, you know, which way are they facing? Um, how do you transition from one activity to the next or from one element of a lesson to the next? What do those transitions look like? How do you want pupils to respond to answers? Is it a case of its hands, no hands? Are you going to go with um, you know, strategies like cold calling? Are you going to get people to shape their answers? They give full answers. Are you going to bounce answers around the room? So whilst one pupil, you know, Johnny, who always gives the right answer, has given an answer, you're going to make sure that you know, Matthew in the corner has actually understood that and repeats that answer, or are you not? How do you then end your lesson? How do you dismiss your class? It's all those different elements that you can't just leave to chance. And actually the teachers who struggle more than others are the ones that leave those elements purely to chance, but also haven't received training in how to do that as well. Because again, back to the school's responsibility, there was a responsibility to share with staff how to do those things. Otherwise you're, you're in a holistic sense, just leaving it again to chance. Mm, certainly, like we say there about leaving it to chance, there's a lot of things that staff are just expecting to know, whereas if you, if you support them and you help them, and in terms of routines, if you support staff, and this is how you want you want kids to go from activity to silence to another activity to hand out books, to stand up, to sit down, to empty your classroom. And it brings me back to when I spoke with Tom Bennett and, and his 10 principles, that last one that he shared was my room my rules and I, and I like what yep. you shared there yet that mantra of you're entering the teacher's room i really really like that i'm going to take that with me so thank <laughs> you very much Pleasure. 
Um, my next one, Sam, is to ask, is leadership really a, really a race? Brilliant question, brilliant question. Yeah, I think back to about 10, 12 years ago, there was this whole notion that school improvement could be done. You could transform a school, turn it around, get amazing results, get from RI to outstanding in about 18 months. And we had um, a phase of superhead, uh, you know, superhero style head teachers, the superheads. And, you know, I guess under the, oh, it was an old, a different framework back then. Uh, and there were more games that you could play in, in terms of exam results and getting exam results. Um, but it doesn't, the experience I've had where you've got these kind of superhead characters is it doesn't lead to long-term sustainable change. It's a quick fix band-aid. And I think if I'm going to put my own school context here now in, into this, and I know I've talked to you before about my school, um, but when I joined in, in April of 2017, the school was in a real mess. Behaviour was all over the place. The curriculum was nowhere near where it should have been. Um, the staff were broken. Um, a third of the staff were leaving as I joined. And I mean, I could go on and on and on about the problems. Um, but the reality is, you know, and especially with hindsight, I suppose, we could have put a massive Band-Aid on the school and probably transformed it inside maybe a year um, and got the school in an academic, I'm going to say in an academic sense, in a results sense mm -hmm. to a different place quite quickly. But it wouldn't have been sustainable. I could have played a few... There were a few remaining games when I joined that you could have played, ECDL being an example. I could have put every single pupil through that. I could have put every single pupil through the finance um, GCSE qualification as well. And I could probably put every pupil through stats when I joined. And that would have masked many of the issues that were going on in the school. And I could have probably pumped, which the school had been doing, a, a big wad of cash into year 11 to get them over the line when I joined. But that literally is a masking effect because then, because what you've got is another four year groups where Rome is burning and you're not doing anything about. So my view is leadership is not a race. Leadership is about doing the right thing in the right manner, slowly and systematically. Um, some settings require you to go at a faster pace than others. Um, I appreciate that. Certainly special measures schools require a bit probably a bit more urgency than an RI school, which is what I occupy. Um, but that still requires you to go at fast at times and then other, at times not. Um, but I, my own view is, I, and I think about what can staff cope with? What your, your staffing body, if you want them teaching properly and you want them to be thinking about their subject knowledge and their curriculum, they probably aren't going to be able to cope with much more in terms of you know, priorities and things that are, are being thrown at them. And I use a water bottle analogy, which I think I talk about in my, in my book as well, to be fair, whereby a staff's kind of mind and working capacity is a bit like a water bottle, which you've just bought from the shop. And when you take the, the, the lid off, the water's pretty much up to the top. There's a tiny little bit of space left. And if you pour a million and one things in, well, it just overflows and it becomes this giant mess. And schools are very much like that, that if you th throw a million initiatives with no notice, no explanation, no training, no sense of why, and there's too many of them as well, then it's just a complete, almost a car crash of, of disaster where people are walking away thinking, I don't understand. I don't know why we're doing that. I've not really bought into it. I'm going to be potentially my worst obtuse towards the leadership team around what we're trying to do uh, and my own view is that you should pick one major 
um, thing that you're going to drive in any one given academic year, which is probably supported by two or three drivers. And again, I think about my own context, you know, year one in post was the culture, the climate and the ethos of the school. That was it. I didn't want to do anything else. I knew that the curriculum wasn't where it needed to be. The impatient part of me wanted it all fixed within two minutes, but it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. I know that. Uh, and that's not me trying to say I know it all, but it's just, again, through my own experience, that's what I've seen throughout my career. Where you take your time and you do things properly and you give training and you give people time to think about things, they do them properly. Where you drop something on a Friday ready for Monday, it's a disaster. Um, so no, leadership isn't a race. Leadership is about thinking things through really carefully at the leadership end. It's also about, um, and David Didow talks about this in terms of being like a defensive shield against all the, he'll use some choice words, but all the chaff um, to, you know, to protect them from, to let them do their core job, but then to systemically build your school one, one point at a time. And I think there's points where you, you need pause moments. Um, you know, had COVID not happened, because that kind of derailed the, what we were trying to do last year, our school improvement plan was called doing the same but better uh, last academic year. And it was literally a case now of we've had, the culture is fairly embedded. We've got a knowledge rich curriculum up and running. It's nowhere near complete. That's a big, but you know, it's a lifetime of work to be fair, but it's going to take a good five or seven years to get it kind of really where I'd like it to remotely be. Um, but I just wanted to slow everything down. I just wanted everything to simmer, to embed, people to be confident with what they're doing before we were to bring in anything extra. So I, I think you've got to be brave enough to make those kinds of decisions where you're going to say, you know what, it's fine to go for a pause because actually we just need things to be really, really solid as opposed to what's the next thing that we can do because it might look good for on somebody's tick box sheet for Ofsted. Uh, and that's what, what I think we should avoid doing personally. I don't think it works. So I like how you add in the word bravery towards the end there because it does, it does require a bit of bravery. I mean, I can think of my, my own career. My, it's relatively short, but there's been a few initiatives that have been for the benefit of, of someone's SQH or what have you, not really for the long-term sustainable change that's needed for the schools. And, and, and thank you for sharing such wonderful examples from your own setting as well that hopefully will, will inspire others. So we've covered a lot through from the, from the, the housing dream to knowledge-rich schools, the, the, the role of subject knowledge and, and teachers as experts and, and uh, the kryptonite that is behaviour. So to sum that all up, Sam, how do school leaders allow the housing dream to, to happen in their schools? It, it goes, well, there's a number of factors. Firstly, it's the school improvement plan priorities that you're trying to drive. You know, having a real sound awareness of where your school's at, what, where you want it to go next, but rationalising it. So without trying to repeat my previous answer, I think it's having one clear thing that you are absolutely going to achieve this year, but it's going to be all singing or dancing because you're going to give the, the, you know, the, the 10% of time that staff have got to think about everything else to that. Um, so there's, there's that aspect. There, that then allows staff to know where you're going and what you're doing, but there's a consistency to it because that allows you then to communicate and over-communicate the same narrative, the same message, almost on repeat. And actually, initially, staff think you're probably mental for doing that. And I had that, again, in my own school. I, I got kind of nudged by one of my deputies. He said, you do know you keep repeating yourself. I was like, 
yeah, it's deliberate. I'm not a nutter. Uh, <laughs> and that, yeah, and it, it's kind of forevermore just kind of stuck. Um, so you've got that aspect. You've then got the workload element as well. What, what do you actually want from the school? Do you need six data drops a year per year group? Or do you only need two? Do you need to be analysing data endlessly? Can someone centrally do that? For the, so that staff don't have to do it and they can think more about the actions uh, that they might need to engage with so you've, you've got that aspect um, you've got behavior which we've talked about this evening and we talked about the last time that, that we spoke but who's driving that if that's done centrally and it's taken away from staff this isn't to de-skill staff this is to free them up to do the things that are important that saves an, an immense amount of time. And we saw that in my own setting, that by centralising everything, it took all the problems away so that they, you know, departmental meetings weren't torn apart by having to run a departmental detention, as an example. Uh, so I think thinking about workload is, is another massive element. We could talk about that for, for ages, to be fair. And then the other, the other aspect here is your directed time. What do you do with the statutory training days that you have as an academy you, if you, you know, work in an academy you've got the freedom to have more than five training days you can have seven ten fifteen i'm kind of exaggerating but you can decide how many you want but thinking about what you're going to do with those as well um you know are you going to bring in the man in a van to do oh, sorry this sounds a bit sexist but it's a cliche isn't it really that someone external comes in whips everybody <laughs> up for three hours does something fun and engaging disappears they've everyone's made a, a couple of notes they've got a, a little booklet they've been given and it goes on a, on a shelf and it gathers dust or are you going to do something that's deep and meaningful about the curriculum but actually giving the time to departments to do that um, and then your wider cpd commitment to staff as well um, you know what time allocation you're going to give staff to professionally develop themselves are you going to allow staff the headroom to think about one element of their own practice are we always going to use performance management in a data-centric way to beat people with or are we actually going to say do you know what performance management can kind of almost go out the window it's more about professionally developing you to be a really skilled practitioner um, because people need time to think things through people need time to hone in on one particular thing and it's the business it's the business studies analogy of accumulation of marginal gains if if in this year i get really really good at behavior and then in my second year i get really really good at questioning i'm being quite broad and crude here but in my third year i get really really good at you know shaping answers with my pupils and using steps as a, as a Douglas Moff strategy. Suddenly my delivery incrementally gets better and better and better and better and better. And by default, my pupils will probably learn more. My, the culture in my classroom will probably be better. And if I'm teaching, um, you know, examination groups, their results will probably get better because we're maximising more of the learning time that's open to us. Then you magnify that across the staffing body and suddenly you see push the, the, the institution moving and moving and moving in the right direction but again it's being back to that word brave but it's, it's sticking true to what you believe in and being brave enough to see it through for your school certainly i love that word bravery came up again but you, you're you're talking about real things that we need to to start now and and go for the long term and, and i spoke with with gavin oates 
um, back earlier in, in, in 2020, and he spoke a lot about planting trees that you'll never see grow. And in essence, is the same in terms of that leadership aspect. You're, you're allowing staff, and you've mentioned a lot about giving them the time and support to, say, develop their subject knowledge, but allowing them to do that as you planting a tree that, that, you, that you might never see the outcome of, of that child just something switches with them and as they go to the end of the school and and go into the wider world of work so that brings us to the end of that interview section sam so before we go on to to, to my to my quick fire round which i'm hoping will be quick fire uh, <laughs> here with the with the listeners again where can they can interact with you and um, hear more more from you and also where can they buy your book yeah, so uh, on Twitter, uh, my handle is at StrichoMaster. Um, I'm also on, um, I can never remember the name of it now, which is really bad on my part, which is when I'm going to my phone. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I should have known that like that. Sorry, this is, this is COVID tiredness for you. <laughs> um, in terms of my books, they're available from John Cat. They're also available on Amazon. Um, and yeah, if people want to, to engage with me, they're, they're kind of the platforms to engage with me um, on. When things get back to hopefully Touchwood being normal, um, as a school, we are really open and receptive to visitors. So if they want to email the school for my attention, um, yeah, obviously once things settle, I'm more than happy to, to host people and show them what we do and talk them through kind of the approach that we've taken. And I, and I hope that helps people if nothing else. Certainly, and I, and I would love for our third meeting, Sam, to, to be in person if, I, if, if that, could, great. that could happen. Um, thank you so much. And I'd encourage people to go out and, and, and buy the books. I mean, they're short, but they're incredibly powerful in what's written in them. So thank you very much. Thank you. So I've now got three questions in my quickfire round. I'd like you to respond with the first thing that comes to your head. Um, and, and I think we could probably predict some of the, some of the answers. <laughs> given the threads that have come through the interview. So what makes great teaching for you? Clear routines, excellent subject knowledge, and a passion for your subject. I'll keep it simple. Absolutely. Um, what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Consistent routines and a consistent approach to behavior. I've given you two there. <laughs> okay. Um, in my previous one, uh, when I asked for one book, I sometimes got four or five. <laughs> <laughs> it shows the it shows how much um, how much how much love and, and enthusiasm people have for education. My final one then is: if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? Ooh. I don't know why I've paused here because I've got about a million and one things I could say. <laughs> <laughs> if I could change one thing. I think it would be all the, the, the white noise that's in the profession, all the red tape that just gets in the way of what we're actually trying to do. And I think it's so forgotten at times that actually teaching in itself, and I'm sorry, I'm giving you a long-winded answer now, teaching itself is actually that the, the concept is relatively simple. It's hard, don't get me wrong, it's hard. It's hard work and it's tiring. But actually the idea of teacher, expert, in a room with pupils learning, the concept is simple. Why do we throw in all the other mess and, and madness that we do? Let's get rid of that. Certainly, and, and Mary Maya has certainly done a lot of work recently in, in, in advising us to cut the crap. <laughs> Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for coming back on the Thank podcast you for, for, your, for your second 
second show so thank you so much for your time thank you thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated as ever I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email so that you don't miss out I urge you to subscribe to the podcast and while I have your attention why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many many others can access Becoming Educated I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.